Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the tragic story of a mass shooting at a church in Charleston. But first, your true crime headlines. Four Michigan teens who admitted to throwing rocks from an expressway overpass, killing a father of four, will be sentenced as adults for their crime. The teens, aged 16 to 18 years old, agreed to plead guilty last year to one count each of manslaughter for throwing rocks and other debris from the overpass. At the time, their attorneys also requested that the young men be sentenced as juveniles, which a judge rejected last week. They now have until August 20th to decide if they will proceed with their guilty pleas or withdraw them. A 15, 18-year-old Kyle Anger is believed to be the one who threw the rock that smashed through the windshield. He has already pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and will be sentenced at a later date. The victim, 32-year-old Kenneth White, was the father of four young children. White was in the passenger seat of a van on his way back home from work when a six-pound rock crashed through the windshield and hit him. It struck him in the face and chest, fracturing his skull and breaking his clavicle and upper ribs. He was knocked unconscious and pronounced dead at the hospital a short time later. In court, Genesee County Circuit Court Judge Joseph Farah read Snapchat messages between the teens in which they seemed to make light of their crime. He also pointed out that this was not an isolated incident and that the teens had collected items with the sole purpose of throwing them off the overpass. The teens will return to court on August 20th. Trial is underway for a man accused of kidnapping and torturing the owner of a marijuana dispensary in 2012. 40-year-old Hussein Nairi is charged with two counts of kidnapping for extortion, torture, aggravated mayhem, and burglary. Prosecutors allege that Nairi and co-conspirators Kyle Handley and Ryan Kevorkian mistakenly believed that the victim, who owned a successful marijuana dispensary, had a secret stash of cash hidden in the Mojave Desert. They planned an elaborate robbery, kidnapping the dispensary owner and his roommate and driving them out to the desert. During the drive, they beat and tortured the dispensary owner, demanding that he tell them where he had hidden all of his money. After the dispensary owner insisted that there was no money, his kidnappers cut off his penis and doused his body with bleach. They then drove off, leaving the victim bleeding and seriously injured. His roommate was able to break free from her restraints and seek help, and both victims were treated at a nearby hospital. Kyle Handley has already been sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Nairi faces a similar sentence if found guilty. In 2016, Hussein Nairi was one of three inmates who brazenly videotaped their escape from the Orange County Jail using a contraband cell phone and then spent eight days on the run before being recaptured in San Francisco. Friends of murdered Ole Miss sorority sister Allie Costell describe her on-again, off-again ex-boyfriend and alleged killer as crazy aggressive and told reporters that they begged her to end the abusive relationship. 22-year-old Brandon Thiesfeld was charged with murder after allegedly shooting Costell eight times over the weekend. The couple, both business majors at Ole Miss, 
had met through mutual friends and had several classes together. On the night that she is believed to have been murdered, Ellie Costell is seen leaving a local bar around midnight. She returned home, but left again. Surveillance footage from a convenience store shows Costell with Thiesfeld the next morning, just hours before her death. A sheriff on patrol found her bullet-ridden body near a lake 20 minutes from campus at 10.30 Saturday morning. A dorm mate of Thiesfeld said that the young man was a misogynist with a violent streak and a daddy's boy who flaunted his family's wealth. His father, a prominent Texas physician, spoke to reporters and insisted that his son is innocent. Thiesfeld's attorneys have said that he intends to plead not guilty. Those are your true crime headlines. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Up next, the tragic story of a violent hate crime at a church in Charleston. But first, a quick break. Are you suffering from having one of those awful air conditioning units that fits in your apartment window and sounds like a dragon but never quite cools your apartment? Or worse, do you live in Europe right now? Climate change is real, and although we can't solve the problem, we have found a solution for you to stay chill as the world slowly cooks you alive like a lobster in a boiling pot. Enter Ember Wave. Ember Wave was invented by three MIT scientists. Remember science? Worn on your wrist, Ember works like your own personal mini air conditioner and heater, by using a thermoelectric module to cool you down or warm you up. Ember Wave provides comfort in unpredictable climates, which is everywhere now, relief from the stress of the coming apocalypse, and support for the sleep you will inevitably lose over it. One place I've used my Ember Wave is in my over-air-conditioned office, which is now, fun fact, officially colder than the Arctic. And for every Ember Wave sold, Ember matches your purchase by giving one to a polar bear in need. Just kidding. No one can save the polar bears. Stay as cool as a sociopath on a polygraph with Ember. Head to emberwave.com and save $50 with code MM at checkout. That's E-M-B-R-W-A-V-E dot com and code MM at checkout. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the tragic story of a violent hate crime at a church in Charleston. This is the story of the Mother Emanuel AME Massacre. At 8 p.m. on Wednesday, June 17, 2015, it was business as usual at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in downtown Charleston in South Carolina. The 203-year-old church holds a place of honor in the state's history and indeed, the countries. Listed on the United States National Register of Historic Places, Mother Emanuel was established in 1816, is the oldest African Methodist Episcopal AME church in the South, and was the first independent black church in the United States. When the church was founded in 1816, state law required that lawful churches be led by whites. African Americans were only allowed to have a separate service, usually held in the basement. 
the original founders of the Emanuel Church experienced a pattern of violence and harassment that lasted years, with 35 members of its congregation being executed after being implicated in a slave revolt plot, and the original Emanuel Church was burned to the ground by a mob of angry whites. In 1834, Charleston outlawed all black churches, and the congregation went underground for several years, rebuilding the church in 1865 after the Civil War ended and the slaves were emancipated. In March of 1909, Booker T. Washington spoke at Emanuel AME Church. At a 1962 church meeting, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. urged church members to register and vote. In 1969, the widowed Coretta Scott King led a march of 1,500 demonstrators to the church in support of striking hospital workers in Charleston. The church's pastor and 900 demonstrators were arrested. With such a powerful history, it's no wonder that Charleston's annual Emancipation Day parade on January 1st ends at Emanuel AME Church. But in 2015, on June 17th, it was Wednesday, and the church was hosting its weekly Bible study. The group, which normally drew around 20 people, was led by the pastor of the congregation and was held in the basement of the building. Reverend Clementa C. Pinckney, in addition to being the senior pastor of the church, was also a Democratic state senator for the 45th District of South Carolina. Pinckney, following in his predecessor's footsteps, had been active in recent civil rights protests related to police-involved shootings, specifically the shooting of Walter Scott. Reverend Pinckney held rallies after the murder of Walter Scott by a white officer, and as a state senator, Pinckney pushed for legislation requiring police to wear body cameras. The Wednesday Bible study started at 8.30, but people began arriving early to help set up. Reverend Pinckney arrived first at 7.35, followed by Bible study teacher, 58-year-old Myra Thompson. Over the next half hour, 11 more congregants would arrive bringing the total number of worshipers at Emanuel AME Church that Wednesday to 13. The study session began as usual, with Myra Thompson leading the group in reading selected Bible passages for the evening. A few minutes into the study, an unfamiliar figure entered the church through the side door. He was a skinny young white man with a bowl haircut. He wore a gray stained pullover sweater along with a pair of weathered Timberland boots. He was also wearing a fanny pack that appeared to be bulging. Although he arrived late and wasn't a known member of the congregation, the man seemed to be in the right place, as the first thing he asked was, Is this Reverend Pinckney's Bible study? Despite not seeming like the type of person to attend this group, the congregation welcomed the young man with open arms, and invited him to take a seat. He took a seat next to Reverend Pinckney, and the study session resumed. The group studied and discussed the Bible for the next half an hour. The young man was a little quiet, but appeared to be participating along with everyone else. At around 9 p.m., 
the study was nearing its end, so Reverend Pinckney decided to lead the group for one final moment of reflection and prayer. Everyone closed their eyes and bowed their heads. Everyone except the young man. He stood up, unzipped his fanny pack, and swiftly drew a black Glock 45 with a laser sight. The first gunshot was deafening in the small room and immediately shocked the worshippers into opening their eyes. That first gunshot was followed swiftly by several more. Reverend Pinckney was the first hit. He attempted to stand up and move, but was felled by three gunshot wounds to the back. He fell face down and died soon after. Some congregants screamed, others sat frozen in silent shock. Unsure of how or why their peaceful Bible study had turned into something so violent. The young man next took aim at Susie Jackson, an 87-year-old parishioner and family matriarch. Her nephew, 26-year-old Taiwanza Sanders, attempted to intervene and talk the young man down. When Taiwanza asked the young man why he was attacking churchgoers, he replied, I have to do it. You rape our women and you're taking over our country and you have to go. Taiwanza dove in front of his Aunt Susie and was shot first. The young man then shot Taiwanza four times. As he lay on the floor bleeding, the young man then turned his attention back to Taiwanza's Aunt Susie and proceeded to shoot her 11 times. Worshippers ducked for cover and attempted to hide under the various tables and chairs in the room. The young man continued shooting. In the next few minutes, while shouting racial slurs, the young man killed six more and injured another, adding, Y'all want something to pray about? I'll give you something to pray about. Taiwan's mother, Felicia Sanders, and her five-year-old granddaughter played dead on the floor. Polly Shepard dove under a table when the shooting started and watched as the bullet casings fell from the gun to the floor. She then miraculously managed to reach for one of the victim's cell phones laying near her and called 911. Shepard quietly told the dispatcher, please come right away, there have been plenty of people shot. The dispatcher, realizing the gravity of the situation, remained calm, urging Shepard to stay as quiet as possible. Seconds later, Shepard said, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. He's reloading, she said. Oh God, please help me. There's so many people dead. Oh my God. Over the course of just a few minutes, the young man reportedly fired 74 shots, with 54 of those shots reaching their targets, thanks to his laser sight. He reloaded at least five times. As Polly Shepard hid under the table praying, the young man approached her, told her to shut up, and asked, Did I shoot you? She replied, No. Then he said, Good, because we need someone to survive, because I'm going to shoot myself, and you'll be the only survivor. 
the young man placed the gun to his head and pulled the trigger. But he was out of ammunition. The young man then uttered racially inflammatory statements over the victim's bodies before walking out. The shooting had lasted only six minutes. Reverend Pinckney's wife and six-year-old daughter, who were hiding in a locked office when they heard gunshots, also called 911. The little girl whispered, Mommy, is Daddy gonna die? She replied, No, baby, no. At 9.05 p.m., Charleston police received the call, and within minutes, a huge police presence amassed at Emanuel AME. They entered the building to find seven dead, two fatally injured, and five unharmed. Taiwanza, who was alive but in grave condition from multiple gunshot wounds, barely hung to life as medics started performing CPR. But Taiwanza died within minutes of their arrival. His mother, Felicia Sanders, later recalled that he never stopped trying to help the others and that the last words he said to her were, Mama, I love you. I love you. 74-year-old Reverend Daniel L. Simmons, while being transported to the hospital with four gunshot wounds, died before he could arrive. The victims, now collectively known as the Charleston Nine or the Emanuel Nine, were Clementa C. Pinckney, 41, the church's pastor, and a South Carolina state senator. Cynthia Marie Graham Hurd, 54, Bible study member and manager for the Charleston County Public Library System, and sister of politician and former state senator Malcolm Graham. Susie Jackson, 87, a Bible study and church choir member. She was the oldest victim of the shooting. Ethel Lee Lance, 70, the church's sexton, the Payne Middleton doctor, 49, a pastor who was also employed as a school administrator and admissions coordinator at Southern Westland University. Taiwanza Sanders, 26, a Bible study member, grandnephew of victim Susie Jackson, the youngest victim of the shooting. Daniel L. Simmons, 74, a pastor who also served at Greater Zion AME Church. Sharonda Coleman Singleton, 45, a pastor, also a speech therapist and track coach at Goose Creek High School. Myra Thompson, 59, Bible study teacher. After arriving at the scene, the police established the Marriott Hotel across the street as a staging area for law enforcement and the victims' families. A few hours later, the Marriott Hotel received a call from a young man claiming that there was a bomb inside the hotel. While it turned out to be a false alarm, the clearing of the building made the already tense and traumatic situation even more difficult. Police immediately began pulling the surveillance camera footage from the church. Surveillance footage showed the bowl-cut sporting young man pulling up to Mother Emanuel AME just after 8.15 p.m. in a black Hyundai Elantra. The next time he appeared on the footage 
was nearly an hour later, just after 9 p.m., creeping out of the church, looking both ways before fully walking out the door. In his right hand, he clutched a large black pistol. He then got into the vehicle and drove away. Based off this, authorities put together a suspect description and put out an APB for his arrest, releasing stills from the surveillance footage. Within a couple of hours of interviewing survivors at the scene, police quickly realized that this was not only a mass shooting, but a hate crime. As a result, the Charleston police called in the FBI to assist in the investigation and the manhunt. Later that night, the FBI determined the identity of the shooter after the killer's own father and uncle contacted the police to positively identify him as the person seen on the security camera footage. He was identified as 21-year-old Dylan Roof from Columbia, South Carolina. Dylan's uncle later said that if Dylan got the death penalty, he would personally push the button himself. Once they had the name of their suspect, police were able to contact the Department of Motor Vehicles and obtain the license plate number for the car that Dylan was driving, a black Hyundai Elantra with a distinctive Confederate States of America front plate. At approximately 10.45 a.m. the following day, on June 18, 2015, Dylan Roof's vehicle was spotted by a motorist in Shelby, North Carolina, around 245 miles away from Charleston. The motorist contacted police, who urged her to follow the car at a safe distance until the police could arrive. After 35 miles, police caught up with Dylan Roof and apprehended him without incident. After detaining him, officers searched his vehicle. In the back seat, they found the Glock that Dylan Roof used in the shooting, along with a Confederate flag. In exchange for being so cooperative with police, Dylan was allowed to have one last real meal before he was taken off to jail. They took him to a Burger King, as that was the nearest restaurant. Later that evening, Dylan Roof was flown to a detention center back in Charleston. Then-President Barack Obama said in Charleston that day, Once again, innocent people were killed, in part because someone who wanted to inflict harm had no trouble getting their hands on a gun. We as a country will have to reckon with the fact that this type of mass violence does not happen in other advanced countries. Michelle and I know several members of the Emanuel AME Church. We knew their pastor, Reverend Pinckney, who, along with eight others, gathered in prayer and fellowship and was murdered last night. And to say our thoughts and prayers are with them and their families and their community doesn't say enough to convey the heartache and the sadness and the anger that we feel. FBI agents interviewed Dylan Roof for over two hours, during which the murderer laughed and confessed to the shooting, stating that he hoped that his act would spark a race war. 
He also admitted that he almost didn't go through with the shooting, since the churchgoers were so nice to him, but ultimately decided that they had to die because someone had to do something. The next day, Dylan Roof was charged with nine counts of murder and one count of unlawful possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. At a bond hearing, the survivors and next of kin for the victims had powerful words for Dylan Roof, who appeared only by video conference. They said that they were praying for his soul, and that ultimately they forgave him. Due to the seriousness of the charges, Dylan Roof was not granted bail and was remanded in the state's custody until his trial could proceed. While he sat in jail awaiting trial, investigators began to piece together Dylan Roof's life and what led up to this tragic act of racial violence. Dylan Roof was born on April 3, 1994, in Columbia, South Carolina, to Bennett Roof, a carpenter, and Amelia Coles, a bartender. Dylan's parents divorced when he was just five years old, and he went to live with his father, who would go on to marry another woman, Paige Mann, before divorcing her after 10 years of marriage. It's alleged that Bennett Roof may have been abusive toward Mann, but never abused Dylan or his younger sister Morgan. Dylan Roof seemed like a normal child for most of his early life. But a 2009 affidavit filed for his father's second divorce shows that he exhibited obsessive-compulsive behavior, was germophobic, and would insist on only having his hair cut in a certain style, the bowl cut. Academically, Dylan was not impressive. Over the span of nine years, he attended at least seven different schools across two South Carolina counties. Dylan had to repeat the ninth grade in 2010. At age 16, he dropped out of school entirely. After dropping out, Dylan spent his newfound free time playing video games, drinking, and doing drugs, namely Suboxone, a drug used to treat opiate addiction, and marijuana. Prior to the shooting, he had been alternating between living with each of his parents or various friends, usually crashing on their couch and then spending his days bumming around. On February 28, 2015, just a few months prior to the shooting, Dylan Roof entered the Columbiana Center Mall in Columbia, South Carolina, wearing all black clothing, walking around asking employees unsettling questions, such as, what time did they close, and how many people would be around after closing. Authorities were called, and when police questioned him, they found a bottle of Suboxone. As a result, Dylan Roof was charged with a misdemeanor count of drug possession and was banned from the mall for a year. But on April 26, 2015, Dylan was arrested again for trespassing at the same mall. Due to him violating the initial ban, 
the ban was extended for an additional three years. That same month, Dylan Roof received around $400 from his father as a birthday present for his 21st birthday so that Dylan could purchase his first handgun. Dylan Roof went to Shooter's Choice Gun Shop in Columbia and purchased a Glock. Dylan's recent drug possession charge should have blocked the sale of the weapon. But a data entry error made by a jail clerk prevented Dylan Roof's drug charge from coming up during the background check. Dylan also purchased two boxes of Winchester hollow point bullets. A plot was beginning to form. According to Dylan Roof's internet activities, Dylan had been planning the attack for several months. Authorities soon discovered that Dylan owned a website called lastradesian.com. On this website, Dylan Roof posted his manifesto, which outlined his reasons for the attack and his views on different races and ethnicities. Dylan cited that the incident that woke him up was the 2012 shooting of Trayvon Martin. Additionally, this incident caused him to Google black-on-white crime, which, according to Dylan, caused him to, quote, never be the same since that day. According to friends, Dylan was vocal about his new radical views. One friend said that Dylan went on a rant about blacks taking over the world. He reportedly told friends and neighbors of his plans to kill people, including a plot to attack the College of Charleston. But no one took his claims seriously. Dylan Roof's Facebook picture showed him wearing a jacket decorated with racist symbols, such as the flag of Rhodesia, apartheid-era Zimbabwe, and the flag of apartheid-era South Africa. Other photos show him wielding a Confederate flag. Dylan Roof's browser history revealed that he also frequented white supremacist sites such as Stormfront, although he never appeared to discuss his attack with anyone online. Photos found on his hard drive show Dylan traveling around South Carolina, flashing his gun, and burning an American flag. Investigators also recovered a list that Dylan made of various black churches that were potential targets. Before selecting Mother Emanuel AME, Dylan visited at least twice to conduct surveillance. Interrogations with Dylan Roof after his arrest determined that he had researched Emanuel AME Church and targeted it because of its role in African-American history. On December 7, 2016, nearly a year and a half after the shooting, Dylan Roof's trial finally began. Due to the scale of his crime and the fact that it was a hate crime, Dylan Roof had his federal trial first, followed by the state trial. In Dylan's opening statement, he told the jury 
that he did not regret what he did. I'm not going to lie to you, he said. There's nothing wrong with me psychologically. Court psychiatrist argued that Dylan was autistic, anxious, and depressed, but that this was not enough for him to not understand what he was doing. Prosecutors showed the jury a journal that Dylan Roof kept after his arrest, where he wrote, I do not regret what I did. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people that I killed. Sometimes in my cell, I think about how good it would be to watch a movie, but then I remember how good it felt to do what I did, and I think it was worth it. The widow of Reverend Pinckney testified that during the rampage, she heard Dylan Roof say, I'm not crazy, I have to do this. On December 15, 2016, the jury found Dylan Roof guilty on all charges, including the hate crime charges. At his sentencing hearing, Dylan Roof chose to represent himself. He said to avoid defense lawyers pursuing a mental health argument on his behalf and showed no remorse, saying in his closing statement, I think it's safe to say that nobody in their mind wants to go into a church and kill people. In my confession tape, I told them I had to. But it's not true. I didn't have to. No one made me. What I meant was, I felt like I had to do it. I still feel like I have to do it. Taking issue with arguments that he was a hateful person, Dylan Roof added, Anyone, including the prosecution, who thinks I'm filled with hatred has no idea what hate is. They don't know anything about hate. My point is that anyone who hates anything, in their mind, has a good reason for it. In the end, Dylan Roof made almost no attempt to avoid the death penalty. On January 11, 2017, Dylan Roof was sentenced to death. In April of 2017, Dylan Roof pled guilty to all charges in the state trial and was subsequently sentenced to remain on death row. In September of 2017, Dylan Roof wrote a request to replace his Jewish and Indian lawyers who were appealing his death sentence. Dylan Roof wrote, It will be impossible for me to trust two attorneys that are my political and biological enemies. A day after Roof filed this handwritten appeal, the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals issued a one-page, 11-word denial. The court denies the motion for substitution of counsel on appeal. Dylan Roof is currently on death row, awaiting execution. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.